Pulp MX Network production. Thanks for all the support, Pulp MX fans. The Pulp MX app is now available for both iPhone and Android-based phones. For all your moto needs, shop at btosports.com and use the current discount code PULPMX. And don't forget to click the Amazon banner on PULPMX.com when purchasing anything from Amazon. It's the Steve Mathis Show, brought to you by RacerX, presented by BTOSports.com and ThorMX. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Thor MX. Check out BTOsports.com for a discount code in this commercial. On this show as well, listen, uh, check out ThorMX.com for the latest 2014 lines. Thanks very much for listening to this. Uh, we haven't done one in a while, and uh, we're back. So, And we're back with, uh, with a guy that's uh, been racing his whole life and now made a successful transition to uh, post-race career and, and of course, um, Everybody's favorite voice of the GPs, Paul Malin. What's got, what's happening, Paul? I'm just getting ready for Christmas, like everybody else, Steve. What are you doing? Yeah, same thing. Same thing. Christmas is coming up, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's really close. It's very close. Although, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, in England, it's um, kind of promoted since the summer. I have a picture on my phone <laughs> from about June or July. In fact, it was around Majora, uh, the GP in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a hotel in my hometown. And uh, they'd got a big banner outside the hotel telling us to book now for Christmas dinner to not be disappointed. And it was 30 degrees outside at the time. So, um, (laughs) you know, by the time Christmas Day comes around in this country, everyone's already done with it. Yeah, really, right? Um, And uh, um, I didn't get all my shopping done yet. So just between you and I, I didn't get all my shopping done. Okay, I won't won't tell if you don't. Um, Hey, so uh, everything good with you? Um, Long seasons for you. And uh, I saw you at Bercy. Again, calling the action. What do you do? Uh, so you got your motocross schools. What do you do sort of in the winter? Is there anything going on in your life, or do you just regroup and get ready for another year? Well, I'm on downtime right now. So mm-hmm. um, in that respect, uh, yes, you know, I saw you in Bercy. Obviously, uh, the Grand Prix Series, 18 GPs plus the Nations. Um, so we were done by end of September. There mm-hmm. was a couple Supermoto rounds to cover, World Supermoto, that I uh, voiced those over. Um, there, yes, there were some schools, did a handful of those in November. I was in Bercy, uh, did a presentation for Husqvarna at the Eichmer show in Milan. So I introduced the, the new bikes, the, the, the two managing directors from, uh, from Germany and also, uh, uh, or from Austria. And then also the, um, you know, I did the presentation, introduced the riders that were there. Tyler Attray was uh, still in the States at that point, so he wasn't able to make it. But um, but everybody else, you know, in the mm-hmm. team, and, and, and that was that. But, yeah, a handful of schools at the end of November, and I was due to go to Geneva, but that kind of fell through last minute. So um, gave me an extra weekend at home, which, uh, yeah, of course, thankful for that. Yeah, my, and my, Geneva fell th- ready. my Geneva Supercross trip fell through at the last minute, too. So. Um. Well, there we go. Yeah, because <laughs> um, we were talking about that in Bercy, weren't yeah, we? We yeah. were, yeah. We'll, we'll, you know, I'll probably catch you in Geneva. Yeah, me too. Blah blah blah. And obviously, it didn't happen. But uh, the race went ahead, but uh, without us there. So you can do schools in England in November. 
Uh, that's the latest. Okay. Uh, there was a window of opportunity. <laughs> the weather was still pretty mild, but also um, normally, as a rule, I kind of operate. Um, you know, people get there sort of around nine. We're normally on track around ten-ish, um, and the day will go ahead until around four o'clock. Obviously, in the summer, it's endless daylight, but yeah. in the winter. Sometimes that can get cut short by, you know, maybe 30 minutes or so. But mm -hmm. after the end of November, that last week of November, you're really getting into dark time around about sort of 3, 3.30 over here. So mm -hmm. um, there's no sense doing it. The temperatures don't get up. I mean, it's around about 7 or 8 degrees today. Uh, we've got a heavy wind outside at the moment. So the tracks are never drying out, you know, right, and, right. and circuit owners are reluctant to rent circuits out during the week. Um, because their bread and butter really is guys going in on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday. So, mm -hmm. you know, you go there with uh, 10, 12 guys uh, to do a school and, and chew a, a circuit up, and they have to go prep it after that for the weekend. Um, right. It doesn't make sense for anybody. So um, it's just nice to be home, though, uh, because, you know, when the GP start, obviously I'll be on a plane 26th of February, uh, Qatar, Thailand, the first two. Uh, a GP for me is five days flying out Thursday, getting back Monday. So my weekends normally come sort of Tuesday, Wednesday, but yeah. there's other voiceover work that I do as well during the season. So, um, you know, it's it's pretty full on once I start. Yeah, unlike the, AMA, the, the American Nationals, one-day format now, it is like I get in late Saturday night and I'm out Monday morning and, you know, the day flies by. And you guys are, uh, you know, you're practicing qualifying on Saturday and, and racing, racing on on. Saturday and then Sunday and then Friday, I imagine you still go to the track and do some stuff. And because the uh, the TV package that Ustream puts out is pretty good, pretty pretty uh, extensive, pretty uh, deep coverage. I was going to say extensive. You took the words right out of my mouth. Um, since certainly since they've um, you know done the online program MX Live TV, which mm -hmm. I guess with the rebranding for next year, MXGP is going to be MXGP TV. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the format's still going to be the same. Every race that happens, every race for points is going to be online yeah. on the Internet. So anybody can see it worldwide. Um, of course, you, you know, when we first started, there were a lot of people. I, think they, I don't think some people get the format um, in terms of why, you know, some people say, why should we pay for it when we have Motors TV? Um, but it's not about that. It's about reaching new audiences. You know, there's going to be guys in the U.S., in Canada, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, all over the world that want to watch Motocross World Championship. And if there is an online platform for them to watch it, then, of course, you know, it's a, a pay-per-view, it's a subscription. Uh, you can get in early, get some real good deals, uh, and everything's on demand as well. So you don't have to just watch it live. You mm -hmm. can watch it when you get back in from whatever it is that you're doing that, that day, that weekend. So, um, and there's other stuff on there as well, all kinds of content, you know. So um, in that respect, yeah, very extensive. But we go live anyway on, on Motors TV, which is a, a European based in Paris mm -hmm. uh, sports network. All the races go live, the MX two and uh, what is going to be MXGP next year, the old MX1 class. Right. So we are spoiled over here. You know, the GPs go out live uh, and that's it. So it's, um, that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. I don't think it happens every race in the U.S., does it? Or is it, I, you know? I believe uh, this year, I think they'll be all live in 2014 for the first time. Okay. Yeah. Um, I could be, maybe I'm off by one or two, but it's, uh, it always amazes me. I tell Adam Wheeler this, our, our mutual friend, and same with Georgia Lindsay. The the GP riders themselves, and we're talking the Antonio Carolis, Jeffrey Hurlings, these type of guys, they are uh, fully on board with giving you guys MX Life TV 
as much access as you need. After the race, they're up there for 20 minutes. They're right after they cross the finish line, they're getting interviewed. Then they're up on some couch for 20 minutes, and then they're maybe in the booth. And, and, and the, the, the riders themselves in the GPs, I'm always impressed with how much they buy into this TV program. Well, we had Tony Cairoli, for instance. We followed him around at Learop, the final GP of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, we get to do team reports that we put out during the live. So there'll be, um, on the most part, two teams, um, and sometimes three, depending on you know how many teams we have to feature, and and obviously divided up by the number of races. So. Um, but with Tony, his team report, basically, we just thought, you know, what's it like being Tony Cairoli, following him around everywhere, the press, the paps, uh, right. the photographers, everybody else, the fans. So it was a, a nice sort of, you know, three-minute clip, three-and-a-half-minute clip of uh, of him, you know, following him around, you know, spending time with his mechanics, hanging out in his uh, Red Bull station uh, at the evening, um, dealing with fans, the autographs, mm-hmm. that kind yeah. of thing. There were a few sound bites in there, but it was just generally more about – this is what happens on a, on a general weekend for Tony Cairoli, you know. Obviously, if we'd have got him in Italy, it would have been crazy. We wouldn't have been able to follow him because it was just crazy there anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it's, it's impressive. I, it's always impressive to me what, what these guys do. Yeah, and of course, we have our live studio show as well. You know, when we first started on MX Live TV, we had the, the live show on a Saturday that sometimes would be an hour, an hour and a half. We switched that up to Sunday live after the first MX1 race um, or MXGP as it's, you know, going to be called next year. Um, and so basically we now have a 30-minute 30, 30 slot where so the race will finish just around 2 o'clock. It's in the live one-hour broadcast. Mm-hmm. And then at 2.15, we will be – so a 15-minute break, get everybody into position. We'll start with – you know, well, we'll have three guests basically um, from whether it be industry or a couple of MX2 riders or an MX1 guy or a bit of both. Obviously, it's a little bit short with the MX2 because when we start at 2.15, their race goes at 3, so they've got 45 minutes in which to mm-hmm. do a you know a 5 or 10-minute slot and then go down to the work area, down to the start line, uh, prep their gate, get ready for the sighting lap, go out and then do the race. So the MX2 side is a little bit, uh, can be a little bit frantic for them, but mm-hmm. certainly for MX1, you know, they, like you say, they give us their time. They understand what it's all about, that exposure, the the, the deal for their sponsors, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a nice little addition just to get exactly what's happening at that time from the riders. You know, how was your first race? What can you change for the second race? You know, how's the injury or, or, or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend not to, I, if I can help it, I try not to get the riders at their home GP because I know there's already a lot of stress and a lot of pressure yeah. um, at that time anyway. But Certain, there are some guys that you know you can get away with it. Uh, Ken Dijker, for instance, great. Uh, he's a good guy. He, yeah. I could have him at the Belgian GP, no problem. But having Clement de Salle at the Belgian GP on a live studio show, probably a little bit tougher. Right, right. Um, where are we at with the GPs right now? I mean, some would, as a guy that raced them, uh, not far off for their heydays. I mean, I would say maybe the mid-80s were the heyday, but you were right there. And um, there's a guy that's raced them, and and when you know they were de- deep, and the and some of the greatest riders of all time were in there. We're at a point where, thank God, the super finals are gone. By the way, so we're, I won't I won't bring that up. But we're at a point where we're not getting some entries. It's uh, an expensive series to enter. Um, it, it seems like riders are are jumping to the U.S. A lot of them are, and it just seems like it's not. 
I don't know. I don't want to say uh, it's 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 not going the good, but there's something going on. The GPs are a little broken, in my opinion. W- what's your thoughts on this? Well, to be honest, European riders going to the U.S. to try their hand out there is 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 nothing new, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we you look at Roger DeCosta, Torsten Hallman, for instance, all those guys. They went out and did it all early, Carsmackers. So when you um, try to sort of say, oh, you know, all the European guys want to come to the U.S., it's 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 old hat. It's been going on for mm-hmm. forty odd years. So um, it's 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 no it's no sort of uh, new thing. Of course, there's going to be guys that race in the World Championship um, that want to try to be successful also in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, we can look at more recent times. Um, Jean-Michel Bale probably put everybody on the map in terms of Europeans wanting to go there because he was the most successful European right. to do so because he won not only outdoor, but he also won Supercross. Mm-hmm. And he was also a two-time world champion. He went out, he was young, he did it. And then, of course, he you know, came, saw he conquered and then disappeared into road race. So... You know, since then, everybody kind of makes, especially French guys. So when Tortelli went over or Porcel went over, everyone's thinking, well, you're going to be the next Jean-Michel Bale. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, you, you can't begrudge um, a rider racing world championship if that's what they want to do and, and try their hand in the U.S. Right. You know, then that's entirely up to them. But there's, I don't think there's anything over here that's kind of a reason for them to have to go there or want to go, you know, like mm-hmm. let's look at Dean Ferris, for instance, obviously riding, uh, you know, with Steve Dixon for the last year on the Monster Energy Yamaha, letter of intent was signed apparently and all the rest of it. I don't want to go into the whole kind of um, what didn't, didn't happen. Um, but at the end of the day, he's a Red Bull KTM rider for next year, riding in uh, US Supercross in the lights class in the 250 class. So um, it's a dream that he's always harbored. And why is that? Well, because people like Chad Reed, Andrew McFarlane, uh, Metcalf, Burner, all these guys have wanted to do it. Craig Dack before them. Uh, sorry, not Craig Dack. Uh, Jeff Leesk. Jeff Leesk. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a history of Australians wanting to, you know, fly around the back of the globe to, to make the short stop to, to California. So um, it's just, you know, Kenny Roxon. Not many Germans have been successful out there, but he's doing a good job now. So. Um, I just think if you're ambitious, you, you know, you want to say, right, I've done all I want to do in in Europe. Mm-hmm. I now want to go to the U.S. Um, in terms of, I don't know, mixing things up a little bit. Um, we can talk about the, the lack of entries for Qatar, Thailand, or Brazil, or Mexico, or whatever it is. But we've always had, um, well, I mean, but you know, smaller entries for the flyaway races, but, you know, for the actual World Series itself. Well, wait a minute, um, though. Wait a minute, Paul. What about Latvia? I mean that's not that far, you know. It's still um, it's still kind of in the on the continent. Yeah, but I think you know I think when you look at uh, who is it? I think Gautier Paulin uh, made a made a good point. I think what we've got to look at is motocross. Okay, in the U.S. we still have forty riders on the line. Mm-hmm. In World Championship, we always used to have forty riders on the line, and we can have a uh, we can have an old school uh, mentality where we say. It should always be 40 riders. It can only ever be 40 riders, and, and you know, it's mm-hmm. not going to be the same without 40 riders, and just go down that, that road. Right. But at the end of the day, I think sometimes you have to look at it, you know, in terms of a TV uh, perspective as well. 
your top guys, and, and Gertie Paulan made this point, um, it doesn't matter whether there's 10 guys on the gate or 40 guys or 50 guys or 30 guys or 20 mm-hmm. guys. It doesn't matter uh, because TV will pick up the same guys the whole time. You know, the guys that are battling for the championship, the guys that are battling for the podium and the top fives and the championship leader goes down on the first turn. You follow his progress through the field. It doesn't matter whether it's 40 or 30 or 10. You know, you, you, you're still going to hone in on the same guys. So in theory... 40 guys or 50 guys on the, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be um, judgmental or confrontational or, or anything like that. That's just the fact of how TV works when we watch it from a, mm-hmm. you know, from, from the armchair. Um, Tony Cairoli gets a start. We're going to follow him for the first three or four laps. Gautier Paul and Clement de whoever else, Bob Brashef, those guys, if they're down on the deck and they've been fast all weekend, we'll follow their progress through the field. Um, and that's what's going to make it exciting, not necessarily the fact that you've got 40 guys on the gate. You only see those guys when, they, you know, when they're lined up on a wide shot. Oh, there's a stack grid, 40 guys, you know. Um, of course, I come from a, uh, you know, a, a GP career that did have you know, 40 riders on the line as well. Right. The only difference now is if you do go down on the first turn, well, that, you know, it's probably just going. a little bit easier to come through. But That's kind of where I was um, going. Like, you know, I think the cream will still come to the top anyway. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, kind, of, kind of where I'm going is, yeah, you have, you have 17, 18 guys on the line and, and some title contender falls down while, shit, he's, he's eighth or ninth in the first lap, you know? And, yeah, but it's not, 18, it's not 18 guys on the line every week anyway. No, you know, no. To be honest, you know, we we were unfortunate last year, uh, 2013. There were a lot of injuries came at the wrong time, certainly in MX1. Mm-hmm. Um, and so suddenly, in the space of about a week or two, you know, ten guys were were out. You know, so where we would have had, uh, you know, 30 at least 30 guys, 32, 33 guys. Suddenly, you're, you know, you get into the tail end of the season. People aren't committed to it anymore because they can't gain a position uh, in the championship um, and mm-hmm. so they decide not to go to that round or because they don't ride the sand very well so they don't go to Lirop and mm-hmm. then suddenly when you've got 10 guys out injured as well it just makes it look like it's um, you know um, a worse situation than it is but right, right. Um, you know I think for the most part um, you know and if everybody's healthy you know 30 guys 30 35 guys is, is going to be the norm I mean, I don't know which GPs you've been to recently. Um, I know I see you at the Nations. Um, I know you went to Lommel a couple of years ago, for instance. I don't know. I can't remember how the numbers were there. But, you know, not everybody likes to ride deep sand. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're telling me. Um, As a guy who raced the 500 GPs when he was uh, 19, 18 years old, um, 18, my first year, yeah, 18. down in 1990. As a guy that raced the, the, the toughest GP class there is at 18 years old, does Jeffrey Hurling staying down for yet another year, and by the way, the rules being changed to make it so, does that disappoint you? I mean, you can look at that as many ways as you want, you know. Um, you know, from his own, I heard something from him um, in the last sort of, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so where, you know, he sort of sort of said, you know, it's not always his decision, you know. I kind of sense that he maybe wants to go up into MX1 maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, but you've got to look at it also, you know, the way that it's all playing out. You know, mm-hmm. KTM have got two guys, one in MX1, one in MX2. It doesn't make sense to put your top two guys up against each other. Right. Um, no, for sure. Yeah. You know, and you can argue this 
all day long if you want. You can argue it with with KTM and say, you know, why don't you stick him in there with Tony? And Tony's going to sit there and say, yeah, but I want to win 10 world championships, and that's what my contract is until then. And if I win every year, I can equal Stefan Everett. So from the marketing side, you get all of that. Um, from Jeffrey's side, you know, he can go and <laughs> crazily win 100 GPs in the blink of an eye, um, but it's not going to change anything, you know. If if he really wanted to go into MX1, I'm sure he could put his foot down and say, I want to go MX1, and that's and that's it. But he hasn't, and um, you know, it's just it's partly his decision to sort of speak up if he wants to. But at the same time, you know, KTM aren't just going to get rid of him and, and send him to to Kawasaki or Yamaha, for instance, because they know how how strong he is. So if they say, look, we want to keep you here. I uh, would appreciate it if you do. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's a conversation in the background saying, think about the win bonus. <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? Right. Um, uh, it's, uh, I, I just I want to see him move up. He's four or five years in that class. and You know, but yeah. uh, I get it. I get it. Um, you know, I talked to Everett about it for a while at Bercy, and, you know, he kind of made it sound like it was Jeffrey's decision. So I don't, I don't really know. But I do know you're right, though. It, it, I mean, there can only be one title. So if you move Hurlings up, you, as a manufacturer, you're now, you know, you're, you're definitely hurting yourself to win two titles. So, you know, and obviously you you push him up into MX1. I'm sure they've still got guys uh, below him, but it, what it would do is make MX2 a lot more open. We can mm-hmm. see that, you know, from the inconsistency of everybody else. You know, even when he wasn't there last year uh, due to injury in Belgium, uh, the one guy that kind of stood up was Dean Ferris. Because everybody else was suddenly thinking, man, I can win a GP, I can win a GP. Right. Jose Boutron, for instance. Right. Tixier probably thought, yeah, I'm a shoe-in for this, and crashed, him, you know, crashed himself out of contention. Um, so, you know, when you look at it like that, um, Jose Boutron, the Spaniard, for instance, he will, he will openly tell you that he was so tense before the race <laughs> that he wasn't yeah, yeah. Right. riding good. He was getting arm pump, and mm-hmm. he was just so nervous about the prospect of actually, you know, the possibility of winning a, a possible Grand Prix, and you know, um, mm-hmm. and that was just, you know, that's just how it was. Right. Um, talking about your home country, obviously you raced uh, at a high level and, and um, you had David Thorpe, multi-time world champion and King Kurt, who uh, should have probably had one or two along the way. Um, and you have Tommy Searle right now and Jake Nichols, uh, Sean Simpson. And from what I understand, the British championship is doing well and doing pretty strong to where, a British rider doesn't have a lot of ambitions to go to the GPs. Is that correct? And if it is correct, uh, who's the next great British rider? Uh, to be honest, you know, Tommy, Tommy's obviously been, he's got James Dobb in the background, of course, yep. another world champion. That's true. Um, yeah, good point. You're right. You know, he's been there since he was 15 when he first came out of youth into adult with, with Team Green. Mm-hmm. And from that, Tommy's kind of maybe always looked at that, maybe also a part of the Team Green program. I want to go and ride GPs. You know, it wasn't right. until he was there racing GPs that he thought, oh, maybe I can go to America as well. And obviously, you know, KTM put their, you know, got the checkbook out and, and paid for him to be there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Didn't work out for him. He's come back to, to GPs. Um, yeah, there aren't that many... There aren't that many guys, you know, riding world championships. But at the same time, you know, we've got we've got some good guys here, but the teams they're riding for aren't committed to racing in the world championship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's changed a little bit, again, since I was... Uh, it's not like the AMA, where you've got, 
you know, God knows how many teams, you know, 20, 30 teams with, you know, two and three riders, and, you know, they're riding their Supercross and they're riding outdoors, mm-hmm. and they're basically just commuting across the U.S. To, to get to the races, riding with the same people week in, week out. We are uh, a tiny island. You know, it's, it's uh, an expensive world anyway. Yep. And so for the smaller teams that are running in the national championship and running other series, I mean, we don't, we don't just have the AMA, for instance. We have the ACU, which is the main governing body, which is linked in terms of licensing with, uh, with the FIM. Then we have, um, I don't know, maybe six or seven different other affiliations mm-hmm. in terms of uh, this, you know, amateur arm, and, and there's different in, in, the, in the youth as well. So on any weekend, you've got these teams. They're already segregated anyway. They're split all over the place because these guys want to ride the Red Bull Pro Nationals. Those guys want to ride the, the, uh, the ACU's Youth Championship. Um, these guys want to ride at the AMCA, the amateur level. And then you've got guys who run a, want to ride World Championship. And those riders like Sean Simpson, like Tommy Searle, uh, for instance, just to pull those guys out, Jake Nichols, yeah. you know, they're riding for teams that are committed to the World Championship. And the other guys, we've got some, we've got some decent riders in the U.K., but maybe they just feel, yeah, you know, I can... I want to sort of win in my own backyard, mm-hmm. to, to coin a phrase. You right, know, right. They, they feel that they would actually be more successful just riding um, in their own national series, however many series they, they choose to <laughs> yeah, ride. And to, right. teams that the teams that they're riding for, the budgets that they have, don't stretch necessarily to, to go to the World Championship on a regular basis. I mean, there was a team this year where um, Evotech, Stevens, KTM, there's a French kid, uh, Stephen Lenoir, now, they're, they're committed to the, the Maxis British Championship. They're also committed to Red Bull Pro Nationals. Um, but with him being French and living uh, in the U.K. and riding for a French team, mm-hmm. they had opportunities to go and ride as wild cards at some GPs. So yep. they were at the French GP. Obviously, that would have been his home race. Right. Because partly that was in um, the north of France, you know, right. uh, more north than, than, than anywhere else. Not so far from Le Mans, for instance. Right. Uh, where they have the the 24-hour classic um, road race. Then, so he was able to ride the French GP because there were no date clashes. Then he rode the the Belgian GP um, at Bastogne. So, and he also, I think, rode the the GP at Massilly. And he may even have rode at Lierop, for instance, you know, the final round. So Mm -hmm. there were a handful of races that his team could sit there and go, all right, on paper, we're committed to this, but... Bear weekend. Oh, the GP is there. Let's go and do it. You know, to get um, to get across to Europe. Yes, we have the Euro Tunnel. Yes, we can take a ferry. Um, but either way, it's not cheap to cross into Europe. Then you've got um, you know the fuel cost to get across Europe and and that kind of thing. So it's a big logistical thing for a small team based on the island as we are mm-hmm. to, to get across to Europe. Um, and not everybody wants to commit to it or can do it. And and I think that's also another factor. Um, in in why some people choose not right. to ride the world championship just because they you know mostly want to I think it's uh, be successful in in their own country that's uh, the first and foremost thing I think that's a good sign though when a country's national series is is that strong and, and certainly you've won I'm sure you've won a ton of British I won three I won three national titles okay I mean it's uh, uh, back to back 125 um, in 96 and 97 and then the Open class. In uh, 99, which was basically you could ride anything from 250cc, this is two-stroke generation, yeah. anything 250, 500, whatever you wanted. Um, of course, back 
I think around then KTM had four strokes and Husaberg had four right. strokes and, and those. So you could have actually had, you know, whatever they were, you know, nigh on 800 cc's <laughs> or whatever it was. But um, so that's why it was an open category. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, three three titles in, you know, sort of in a, in a four-year period. When you win those in Britain, that's a big deal, right? It's a, it's a, it carries some, some cachet? Well, from my side, yeah, because I was riding for uh, Yamaha, Yamaha's... Um, I mean, the, the sort of the history of Yamaha in the UK used to be owned. Uh, Yamaha UK used to be owned by uh, the bank Mitsui, so it used to be Mitsui Yamaha. Then they were standalone, and they're you know they're based uh, in Weybridge, just on the infield of the old uh, Brooklands race circuit, car circuit, a little bit like Daytona. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so they were standalone um, around about maybe ninety five, ninety six, where Steve Dixon picked up. Uh, the mantle and pretty much ran with it to the point where he's still now, you know, running that team. Um, but so me, you know, riding for a, a British based team, a case Japanese manufacturer, but uh, a British based team riding the British championship as a Brit, that's kind of what you at least want to achieve in a, in a riding career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so we had a, a, as a British team, riding in a world championship, we also had a lot of British-based sponsors on board as well. So for them, it's about the exposure of being able to be associated with, you know, this right. team that is now British champion. You know, they are British champions. And um, and so, yes, you know, not just from my perspective or Yamaha's, there are a lot of people associated, as there still are with teams anyway, Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that want to be associated with um, a level of success. So. Um. Let's let's get into your career a little bit. Let's get in a time machine. Um, now, over here, and, and, and I've brought this up to you a ton, uh, the 1994 Motocross Nations in Switzerland, um, you help break uh, the USA's winning streak as well as help Great Britain win for the first time since God knows when. Um, 27 years. 27 years. Uh, you rode a fantastic race. I feel, I feel sorry. For, I watched that race recently, and I feel sorry for Emig because he rode good. You wrote uh, – it was more Mike Krodowski who had a terrible day. But people look at Emig losing as – over here as maybe one of the reasons why USA lost. He rode great. You just rode better. Um, but – and, you know, look, you've got second in the world t- championship. You've, uh, you've uh, placed uh, top five many times. You've won a ton of GPs or a few GPs. But do you get – are you known for that MXDN as much as maybe I make fun of you for it? But it, does, and does it bother you? People can make fun of it all they want. Right. <laughs> I, um, I mean, that on a on a global scale, that's a race that probably defined me more than finishing second in a world championship yeah. behind Sebastian. I, I think Tortelli. it did. I think it did. Yeah. You know, and I'm not uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that. Okay. Um, I came close to winning a world title. Um, came up against Sebastian Tortelli. People say to me, "Oh, if he wasn't there, maybe you would have been world champion." And I, I kind of think differently. I think I needed him for me to have that battle, okay. um, you know, because I'd had a couple of years out in the GP wilderness, if I'm honest. I, I, I burst onto the scene in 1990 mm-hmm. um, on a 500. I was 18 years old. My teammate was Dave Thorpe, uh, Kurt Nickel initially in 89. Um, and, you know, it was a big... It was a big thing. I even though I'd been riding, I've been racing bikes since I was three years old. I mm-hmm. got a bike for Christmas when I was three. Had my first race the day after on Boxing Day, on a little 50cc auto thing, um, 
and but we weren't a, a motocross racing family like an Everts, for instance, or, okay. or the Nichols. Right. Um, it was just a case of we just went riding for fun on weekends, and I started winning races, and then suddenly winning championships. Kawasaki came knocking, and and that was it. And I didn't really know about. Uh, Grand Prix. The first Grand Prix that I ever went to, I think, was probably 1979 at Farley Castle, when okay. the year that Graham Noyce was world champion, the first ever Honda world champion. Um, and Roger DeCosta, Hecky Mikola, all those guys, Brad Lackey, they were the guys, that, you know, doing it that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But, you know, they, for me, it was just like a I didn't know who these people were. I didn't yeah. know what their past was or anything else. For me, it was just an occasion to be there. My parents took me and my brothers. We went and watched this race. It was a world championship. You know, my dad knew more about it than, than I did because he probably used to read the uh, the, the Trials of Motocross News, which right. is a bit like your cycle news, um, every Friday. So, um, And obviously there was a reason why we went. And then, of course, when you're involved with Team Green, um, mm-hmm. right from the offset in the U.K., I was on the first youth team, suddenly you start learning a little bit more about it because, you know, the the adult riders in the team, they're riding World Championship, they're riding British Championship. Right. And so you start to pay attention a little bit more. But even still, I was still very naive in terms of how World Championship worked um, and in terms of how it all kind of panned out to the point where in at 89, when I was 17, I rode or I attempted to qualify at the, the Spanish Grand Prix at the beginning of the year, which was probably the second second or third round of the championship. I didn't go to Italy for the first one because I was still in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think there was Spain and Portugal back-to-back. I never qualified at either of them because my nerves wouldn't take it. I was back yeah, yeah. in the free practice sessions, and then it just wasn't clicking for me in the, in the, in the qualifying sessions. Uh, but then we had England and Ireland a little bit later on in the year, and, and I qualified for those but didn't score points. And then, so suddenly, to go from riding 125s at, at those four rounds yeah. to be told um, halfway through the season, oh, we want you to ride a 500 just to see how you go. Um, you know, I, I just clicked with the bike. I was within a second of, of nickel and, and thought the first time I rode it on a you know pretty high-speed track in the UK, a little bit jumpy, um, hard-packed, slick circuit. But then when I came to race it at the British Championship, it was a track probably rougher than Unadilla, you know, in the back end of nowhere in the hills, and it was just so rugged. And circuits didn't get groomed like they do now. Right. So, you know, I was fast in practice, and that was it. And then basically <laughs> I just um, kind of, they, I think I handed myself my own ass. Right. You know, because uh, I didn't score points in each race, and this was just a national championship, but, a, you know, a highly talented national yeah. championship at the time, stacked well, with, yeah, with Nickel, riders. And, Nickel and Thorpe, right, yeah, they show up. Yeah, right. yeah, but a lot of other guys as well, you know, and, um, and it was a steep learning curve. So basically, I, you know, within the space of, I don't know, maybe six or eight weeks, I'd gone from not scoring points to almost winning the final race of the year at Hawkstone Park, finishing second to, to Kurt. And I, I rode that race with no back brake and a, and a rear wheel puncture, sort of like the last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So suddenly it was, oh, All of a okay, sudden, well, you yeah. can maybe go and ride GPs next year. You're like, wait a minute, I can actually make a living at this. Wait a second. Like, um, well, Kawasaki thought maybe I'm best suited to that class, and right. and for you know for a couple of years it kind of worked. Um, yeah, so it's weird though because again, okay, so you're you're riding 125 and you're doing okay, but you don't qualify. Mm-hmm. Then you get on a 500 and you're you're, you're spinning some some incredible laps, and your your the riding style suits the bike. Clearly, you know how to you know uh, leave it in third and r- lug it around. But then, like like I said, 
again, the 94 designations, you're back on a 125. And this, from what I understood, your results at the designations got you a 125 ride for the next year. Um, so also, you went back to 125s and that day in Switzerland, you you worked everybody. So you're kind of, you made your you made your mark on the 500s because you weren't that good on 125s, but then you ended up being great on 125s. You know I, I mean? wasn't bad on 125s and 250s. Our national championship yeah. was... Um where when I came out of the youth, 125 and 250 would run on the same day. Mm-hmm. So you'd have two 25-minute motos, and you could ride both classes as well. So you'd end up riding four 25-minute motos mm-hmm. pretty much back-to-back. You know, you'd have your first race, and then you'd be a support race, go out for 15, 20 minutes, and then, you know, within 30 minutes, the the second race was going. And then there would be a support race, and then the first 250 race, and then and whatever else. So suddenly it was, you know, four races pretty stacked, and there were a lot of good 125, 250 riders back then, um, you know, riding the scene. And, and also guys would drop down from the 500s to right. ride the 250s, for instance, you know. So... Um, and then, but it was just, I was doing okay. Yeah. You know, I was getting some podium races, uh, finishes. I was winning, you know, races here and there. But I wasn't really a 125 rider or a 250 rider. I was doing okay, you know, like a lot of other guys were doing okay. There was a good bunch of guys that you could finish first to 15th week in, week out. Yeah. But I was at the probably the top end of that. Um, but something clicked but on that In terms of GPs, yeah. I just kind of yeah it didn't happen for me just because i was just very inexperienced i didn't know the best way to qualify i didn't i wasn't schooled in doing mm-hmm. that fast lap you know that one fast lap to get to to qualify for the race mm-hmm. and so you know when i jumped on the 500 it's funny actually because we um the track that i rode a place called ellsworth just near cambridge mm-hmm. in um in england mm-hmm. um i was there, Alec Wright, my old boss, um, the late Alec Wright, he basically said, we, you know, we want you to try the 500 today. Yeah. And I said, okay, no problem. Looking forward to it. But thinking, <laughs> man, you know, why does he want me riding a 500? You know, right, right. <laughs> doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm just a kid. Um, so basically, we, we arrived there. Kurt Nickel was my teammate. Uh, so he was on a 500 full factory Kawasaki. I just rocked up on a on a Prodi, not even not even not even with a a modified pipe, just a, a box stock 500 cc out of the crate that they brought from the workshop. Just took my own suspension in it. That was yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and while we were there, Thorpe was uh, also there, and he obviously already won two world titles and was on the way to his third world title. Yeah. And. I jumped on this bike, and my confidence on the bike was such that, you know, uh, a tabletop is a tabletop, right, whether you're riding a 125 yeah. or a 500. So pretty quickly, within 10 or 15 minutes, I was, you know, playing around and, and feeling the boundaries and that kind of thing. And it also helped that the track was pretty flat. I'd been racing that track since I was a kid, mm-hmm. so I knew my way around it. But um, at some point during the day, I was just having a chat with, with David, uh, Dave Thorpe, and he just said to me, he said, you, you're looking really good on that, mate. He said, um, but, he said, you're still trying to ride it like a 125, 250. Yeah, yeah. I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, all these little switchback corners here, you're chasing the dirt, you're going for the berm, and you're clutching it and trying right. to ride it like a 250. Right. He said, those particular corners, you know, you can go down to first gear, you can go inside, 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 save yourself a lot of time, uh, pull back a lot of distance, and be smooth, you know, and just roll the throttle on and, you know, one gear between there and there and mm-hmm. for that particular part of the circuit. 
So, of course, I started doing that and my time started coming down a bit more. So I just had a bit of a a lesson. And like I say, you know, by the end of the day, I was within a second of uh, both him and and Kurt. And so when I went to that first British Championship race with that, I was thinking, yeah, man, you know, I'm... I can I can win here. I can right. you know beat these guys. I'm I'm as quick as those around there and and whatever else. Roger Harvey actually came up to me at the beginning of the day, beginning of the weekend. Who's now Honda Europe, mm-hmm. um, you know, racing manager. He he came up to me. He said, "What are you doing on the 500, mate?" And I went, <laughs> "Well, I, I said you should have seen me round Ellsworth the other week. I was fast. I was this. I was that." Yeah, and yeah. he said, "Bad move. Bad move. <laughs> you are going to get eaten alive." And he was right. You know, at yeah. this particular track. So, um, you know, humble pie. And I remember the journey home, my, my father said to me, because I, I didn't even have a driving license, and my dad said to me, um, right, you've had a bad day, don't worry about it. You've got two choices, You and you need to make a decision. You either become a, a 125, 250 rider like everybody else, mm-hmm. or you start training and work hard and try to make something of the 500, because clearly you can ride it, right. but you just need fitness and you need strength. And so I hooked up with Kurt Nichols' trainer, a guy called uh, called Roy Carter. Um, so it was, um, you know, it was just twice a week because I was still in school. Mm-hmm. And it was Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings during the summer holidays, which was that period. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to sort of get some fitness to the point where I'd gone from not getting any points and being lapped in all three motos and having some stupid crashes, you know, just yeah. because I was so tired, <laughs> whiskey throttle and, and all kinds of stuff going on that when we went to the next round at Fox Hills, maybe two or three weeks later, I'd scored five points in one race. And then we went to Ellsworth, which is where I first had that ride right. in the 500. And suddenly I'm, I'm almost finishing on the podium. Yeah. And in the first race, I remember Thorpey was behind me for like half the race. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going inside, inside, first gear, first gear, first gear, <laughs> just remembering that conversation that we had with him. And he's probably yeah. thinking, man, why did yeah. I give him all that information? Right. You know, but... You know, by the end of the season, you know, I was I was up there running with those guys and and finish on the podium, which was then how the decision was made. You know, I think right. you can, or we think, at Kawasaki, you can make a job of it. But that first year in 1990 was just a, a modified pipe, and that was it. That's it. Um, oh. and, yeah, just a, a full stock with a a, a Belgian manufactured pipe, um, and just my own suspension, which wasn't factory; it was just modified stock. And uh, you know, I was getting. I'd finished on the podium three or four times. Uh, there was a lot of top five finishes, led some races, and yeah, I mean, this uh, is, found this out is... how to qualify and, and, and do all of that. And the reward was 11th in the championship and a, and a factory bike the following year in 91, so, yeah, this is, which uh... was the perimeter frame thing. So It's that time again. Thanks for listening to the Racer X podcast show, brought to you by btosports.com, presented by Thor MX. I appreciate it. Don't forget to click on the Amazon banner on pulpamex.com to help out pulpamex.com. We appreciate it. Listen to these commercials. Buy from these sponsors. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.
Racer X Podcast Show is brought to you by BTOSports.com. Whether you are looking for new gear, helmets, boots, or you need to rebuild your bike from the ground up, BTO is your source for all of your motocross needs. As a proud sponsor of the BTO Sports KTM race team and the heart of the BTO Sports amateur motocross team, it is obvious that we are about more than being just a store. We support the sport that supports us. us. We at BTO Sports want to give back to you, the listener, for supporting us and the Racer X Podcast Show. Use coupon code PULPMX when placing your order at btosports.com for a VIP listener discount. Certain brand restrictions will apply. Championship proven. Many motocross apparel brands make that claim, but only Thor can back it up. As America's first motocross apparel brand, Thor has set the standard for delivering the highest quality performance racewear on the market for the past 45 years. With champions like Ryan Villapoto, Blake Baggett, and Dean Wilson, to name a few, our products truly are championship proven. To see all the new 2013 products, visit ThorMX.com or head to your local Thor Parts Unlimited dealer. Thor, the official racewear of Supercross. In 90, this is Joe Bay and Thorpe and Gabor's and Nickel. I mean, these aren't, these are some of the greats. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, 1990. Um, did, hey, how did, so once you started becoming fast, how did your relationship go with Thorpe? Was it a little weird? Because, I mean, I imagine the press was now anointing you as the next one. And Thorpe's well, he like, was my teammate in 1989, which is last year at HRC. Yeah. And Kawasaki had obviously had a deal with him. I mean, I don't know when Kawasaki and Thorpe started talking, actually, uh-huh. um, how soon in 1989. And half of me kind of thinks maybe naively that it was just David being David and being nice and maybe thinking, oh, he's a good kid. I've followed him through his schoolboy career, right. and I think he can you know, just do with some advice right now. Uh, and maybe half of me thinks there was a deal that was already being talked about Mm-hmm. to come across to Kawasaki, and therefore we were likely to be teammates the following year, so okay. maybe just give me some advice. He was, yeah, right. I haven't asked him. I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't ask, you know, but right. um, either way, uh, we were teammates the following year. Kurt went back to KTM, mm-hmm. um, and, and so he, David had the first, because at the end of 89, or 1990, for instance, the, the 250s and the 125s came out with the, the perimeter frame, right. if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they'd yeah. gone from the, the single tube down the middle and the old steel frame into the, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of, that box frame. Yeah, I have, one in my gar- I have one in my garage right now. I'm rebuilding. Right now I'm rebuilding. I remember riding the, the, riding the, the prototype um, a week after Mike, Mike Craig, a week after Mike Craig was Saki. He was out there with another American, and I was there for two weeks testing okay. as a 16-year-old. Um, so we tested the 19-inch rear wheel because it had gone from 19 right. to uh, from 18. 18 to 19. And so, in terms of stability and handling and pure outright power, they were great bikes. You know, the 80, uh, the 1990 bikes, but we ran them as a prototype in '88. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so when Thorpe came on board, Kawasaki, I think you know their their first generation of. Um, these perimeter yeah. frame 500s it just kind of didn't work. Yeah. I had to ride it myself later on in the year, and it was a you know it wasn't the best handling bike, and it was very difficult to turn. And so at the end of 1990, when uh, Alex said to me, uh, "We're going to stick you on a factory bike next year, Ace," you didn't want I it. Thought, you were you're like I don't uh, want it. <laughs> you build me up, and then you're about to kick me swiftly in the nuts, you know, and and put me right back down there because I'd already ridden this bike, and it was difficult to ride, you know. 
Um, but as it happened, it was probably one of the best bikes I'd ever ridden. They'd got the geometry, they'd made a frame specifically, the engine fit, everything fit, um, and the suspension, everything, everything about that bike in 91 was just a dream to ride, you know, and, um, but you didn't, you didn't answer whether Thorpe liked you or not, whether he what, whether he liked you or not. How was that? (coughs) Was it fine? Um, I think, you know what? I think at the beginning of 1990, uh, the first round of the national championship. We'd 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 been training in in Europe mm-hmm. um, for a little bit. We rode somewhere in Holland. Um, I remember training out there. My times were probably quicker than his okay. early on. So right. my training was going good. I was confident on the bike. And um, I mean, he was but, still the man. Course, he was still the man back then. I mean, he was defending yeah. world champion then in right. 1990. He right. just won his third title at Honda. Yeah. And um, so you're faster. And so than when him. we went preseason testing, my times were on a par, if not quicker, with his in, in some of the preseason tests that we were doing. But you know, no points for fast times, and right. you don't know if he was right. sandbagging or, or what. And um, but I was using that to my advantage to the point where we got to the first round of the national championship. I, I won the first, the last race, mm-hmm. the you know 30 minute moto. Yep by more than 30 seconds, you know, beating him and Kurt and everything else. Yeah. First round of the championship, but it was my first ever race win. And so, you know, straight away, there's going to be competition in the team, isn't there? I know, um, yeah. Because suddenly here's a guy that you're being offered advice from and, you know, one yeah. of the most successful riders in, in, you know, Britain's world championship history and and suddenly your teammates, but then, whoa, you're, that was a shock at the first round. Right, you're 19. Uh, but we managed yeah. it, you know. Okay. Um, we always got along well, so good, um, good, yeah. there was no there was no real animosity. Um, I think in 91, when we were both on factory bikes, um, you know, he you clearly couple, didn't yeah. like the new chassis. I liked the new chassis. He didn't like the, the, the style of the engine. Okay. Um, and so, controversially, he went from the full factory chassis to the... Yeah, back. Stock chassis. Yeah, I remember that um, in the magazine. And so yeah. you got the guys in Japan sort of scratching their heads thinking, that's not possible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, that's what he chose. That's what he clearly preferred or, you know, or maybe it was right. just psychological warfare. I don't know, but I just knew that I had no problems with the way that my bike felt uh, and, and, and that kind of thing, and I, I was happy to stick with it. Which year did they take the perimeter frame 500 and put the giant square box on top of the gas tank for more fuel? Was that 1990? That, okay. was, that was the, the, the first, right. uh, so, yeah, Mark I. So that, that was the one that was just, uh, that was a dog to handle. Yeah. I rode that at the end of the year. Uh, I mean, he won on that. Yeah. He, he didn't win. Uh, I mean, clearly the, the fuel tank was a lot smaller, but they didn't have the capacity to extend it because it was, mm-hmm. you know, nestled within the, right, right. the, the box of the frame. Uh, and it was only ever intended to be a 125 or 250 because development on 500 had, had pretty much stopped. At right, that. Right. You know, Kawasaki's foresight was this is going to be 125, 250. So, okay, he's still going to run 40-minute motos, but it's not designed for a 500. But they thought how cool would it be to have this sure. lighter weight chassis, this smaller, narrower um you know, machine in the 500 class, almost like the 350 is now, you know, mm-hmm. with KTM. It's that, right. that in-between kind of uh, bike. But the the chassis didn't quite fit, and there was modifications had to be made. And then, of course, they got to Valkenswald, the first GP of the year, and went, yeah, well, we've not been able to get a tank made, so and we're <laughs> going to need extra fuel. And I don't know whose idea it was, but they literally just yeah, yeah locked the top off right. and put a, 
a square but, box on there, which was a little bit insane. But, but yeah, Thorpe um, liked that bike better than the <laughs> Thorpe liked it. He thought it was cool. He was good with it. Well, um, no, I think. Well, no, I mean, it was it was embarrassing. I think at the time, I think you could ask him. It was yeah. it was the talk of the paddock. You know, what is that? And you could see it was a botch job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there weren't too many uh, sand races that year, or real heavy sand races. So, um, and maybe they had uh, a, a, bag, a tank made. They were able to blow it out later on when we went to Finland and when we came to Hawkstone. Um, but you know, yeah, it was. But certainly, the the Mark II from '91 was. Um, Everything fit. Everything was. They learned from their mistakes, um, but he just, you know, didn't feel comfortable on that. Maybe it was because of what happened the year before. I don't know, but, um, but you know, he he got some decent results on it. And but I, I you know, I, I think people. After, it was weird because he started out as a Kawasaki rider at pro level. He rode Suzuki's in mm-hmm. schoolboys. I remember as I was. Um, Starting out as you know, sort of like six, seven, eight years old, he was top end of the schoolboy spectrum, winning everything uh, on a Suzuki in 125s, and then went pro or went AMCA, which was kind of yeah. then um, the amateur rank, and then went to uh, the pro ranks, and he did that with Kawasaki. So um, he started out as a Kawasaki rider, as a pro rider, and then obviously got hooked by HRC, and then you know came back. To Kawasaki, and I think some of it was to do with the fact that HRC didn't want to keep his dad on Keith as a mechanic. Yeah, so that was, was a big deal, right? You know, yeah. When you've been riding for as long as he had at that time, and he'd only ever known that mechanic, it was, you know, with a with a few years left to run, he was kind of maybe thinking that's a big thing to change all of a sudden, you know, right. uh, that working dynamic. Um, and so he ended up back at Kawasaki, and it was you know two years that. Didn't go great, yeah. but, um, you know, he still won a GP. I think he won a GP in Austria. But then after that, you know, things were, I think, just with the bike and, and him, they just weren't gelling, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and like I say, he had his problems in 91 as well. Um, even with the, the standard chassis, we had engine problems, Conrad problems and, and things like that, where there was some high-speed mechanical errors for him that caused Sco- injury yeah, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. So suddenly there's a whole lack of confidence there, and you've got a different guy showing up at the races to what we'd seen you know, um, in years previous where, he, like you say, he was the man. You, uh, 91, you factory guy, you win two GPs, and I like it, Malin, you win the French GP and then you win the Dutch GP in the sand, yeah. um, which, I mean, obviously the French one was the first win. What do you remember about that day? I I, I knew been. the track, actually. Okay. I'd been there the year before as a preseason international, uh, probably February, March, uh, but it was pretty wet when we went in 1990 um, and we went down there, actually we went down there with two bikes, but I, <laughs> I remember a mechanic, um, my bike broke in, in, pra- in practice on the Sunday morning, but because it was knee deep in mud this, uh, in, in 1990, he basically just said, look, the, the second the bike hasn't been run in and it's not the place to run it in. So we right. actually didn't ride the international, but we had a practice on Saturday mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned the track enough on Saturday to feel comfortable and, and be happy with it. So when there was a GP announced there the following year in 91, what, what I was, was already it? looking forward to going back there, you know. Yeah, what track, um, what track was it? Um, it was a place not far from Toulouse, actually. Uh, I'm just trying to think of it now. <laughs> Castle, uh, Castle No de Levis. Okay. Um, so, uh, right. yeah. yeah, basically... I was, it was, you know what, it was a perfect weekend in terms of everything. I was 
fastest on track in the in the two free practices on Saturday yeah. and the time training and qualifying, the free practice on Sunday morning. We used to have the time training for the grid on Sunday morning as well, and then two races just topped all of the charts. Um, so that was kind of a cool way to win it as well, you know, not just the share of the points or or whatever else. I'd been fast all weekend, and my starts were on point, um, you know, mm-hmm. first two or three each, you know, each race. Yeah. Um, but the thing that stands out, stand out really, of course, yeah, first race win and, and, and first overall victory, right. great, you know, not going to, they're the obvious. But the first one was in moto number one, um, I just, I think I was second through the first turn, coming out of the second turn, I'd already taken the lead, and I was surprised at how comfortably I'd won the race, it was more than 30 seconds. Really, huh? Um, yeah, just, 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 just eking it out each yeah. time, you know, and um, and then the second thing I remember is a great battle with Kurt in the, in the second race. Mm-hmm. I think he had arm pump in the first race, so he was, you know, fourth or fifth, third or fourth or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because he lives, you know, he's, his family have got property down in the south of France, so for him, he spent a lot of time doing French internationals, fluent uh, French speaker. Yep. A lot of fans there, so for him, it was probably more of a home GP than riding at uh, Farley Castle or Hawkstone Park, for instance. Well. And... Um, but the second race, all arm pump out of the way, I w- you know we were sort of first and second for, I think it was a 21 lap race, and I think for 19 of those laps we were pretty much bar to bar, wheel to wheel, um, and again like 40 yeah. odd seconds clear of the guy in third, which yeah. at that time I think was Joe Bay. Joe Bay on the private. <laughs> um, Joe Bay won that you know, year, in right? That race. Joe Bay. So, um, yeah. But we we had a great battle, and it was I think just coming around to take the. Uh, the two-lap board, so just over two laps to go, mm-hmm. literally like four corners, and then the two-lap board was going out. I'd been switching up a line at the bottom of one of the hills, um, sometimes coming down tight to the inside into a 180 turn, and sometimes coming sort of wide and sweeping in and taking a tighter exit, right. which was a, a pretty rutted corner anyway. And um, and I could sense he was close, so I just thought, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to go back to the inside. And he, he hadn't read it and just left his braking too late, just ran into the back, and he tipped over in the turn. Um, I felt the nudge, but I didn't want to look back, and, you know, four or five corners after as I came across the line to sort of take the two-lap board. Mm-hmm. Um, my mechanic was like, yeah, Kurt, down, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I took, I took a look across on the next jump and realized how far back he was, so the last lap after oh. that was a, a coast, nice. you know what I mean? But it was a, a great double moto win. But, yeah, you yeah. know, it, it was made more special by the fact that a guy that I'd known for years, even as a, as a kid, you know, um, even though he was like nine, ten years, it was, it was, um, it was, it was quite a, yeah. a special way to win it, you know. Oh, double moto win, yeah. Um, Joe Bay won the title that year, right? That's the year. That's the year he was here, guy winning. Yeah, the title. Kurt actually, Kurt Licker was leading the world championship, then broke a leg in um, right. Right. in practice yeah. in in the Dutch race that I won. Um, but then, yeah, Joe Bay eventually won the title. Um, yeah, it was a, a weird time in the GPs because Honda was sort of not producing works bikes anymore and they were sort of in, they were sort of out. And, you know, you were, the old guard was kind of on the edge of their, like Joe Bay was, you know, older at this point. Um, uh, and Ly, I guess Lyles would have been racing then too, right? Lyles would have been one of, one of the good guys. Um, yeah, yeah, Lyles, um, would... he'd had a good start in 1990. as a, as a He'd been based in Italy yeah. for a few years. He was riding uh, for an Italian team. Um, 
And he, I think he broke a leg in the Italian Grand Prix in practice, the last lap of free practice on the Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, he had, the, he had just, the points lead, I think, right? I think he had the points lead. He had point. the points yeah. lead. I think he'd won the first few motos of the year. And mm-hmm. it looked like, I mean, we can't say, but it, yeah. on the races that he'd ridden, um, yeah. you know, he, he definitely had um, a lot of confidence, um, you know, at the start of the year and was was not erratic as Billy Lyles. He was a, a smooth Billy Lyles, you know. Um, he got a good technician in his corner as well, Johan Leuten, who mm-hmm. was um, a long-time um, mechanic to Kurt Nickel while he was at Kawasaki. Um, you, so uh, it was he had a good he had a good technician there as well. So the, you know he had some there was a lot of good because he wasn't a factory rider at that point. Yeah, so yeah. there was a lot of good technical know-how coming out of Belgium for him. You uh, you also won like you said the Dutch GP. Uh, what were your moto scores there? And talk about like was it. Uh, how was it easy yeah, for it you? Actually, were you always a good sand guy? The first race that I won, I, I, I crashed and burned the second one. I went down on the first turn and then came back and then made too many mistakes. And one was, you know, just a big cartwheel crash about <laughs> uh, four or five laps to go. But yeah. um, it cost me the chance to lead the world championship because I came away from there with a win and, a, and a, like I say, and, and a DNF. Yeah. And I was only two points off the lead. But at the same time, then we had um, some new engine parts come uh, because David had been having a, a few problems uh, with uh, breaking parts and, and that kind of thing. So it was just one of those things where parts arrived. We tested them. Mm-hmm. I didn't like them. He thought they were great. And but Kawasaki's hands were tied and said, you know, we had to use them. But it was not the bike uh-huh. at all. It wasn't even close to what I, you know, was had been racing. And I, I could, I, I sensed it straight away. The first time we rode it, I thought the power valve had broken, wasn't working, <laughs> and it was just so flat. Just, right. Man, this is for 500. This is not a 500, you know. But but um, but Cowie said you and had to use raced, it. we raced an international in Belgium with these parts, and again, just felt like I was riding over myself just to, um, you know, just to try and be competitive, just to be even, just to get to the first turn, and just felt like there was just no snap in the bike anymore. And um, when we came to the, I think it was the Italian Grand Prix, uh, a week after that. Um, I was told that we'd got all the parts back to normal and everything else, but again, went up the start straight, first lap of practice, um, and I, I knew straight away, but it was like, look, there's nothing we can do, that's it. And so for a period of about three GPs, um, my scores my scores were off, my, my confidence was down, and then without even saying anything, they reintroduced the parts, and you know, I'm resigned to the fact that I'm thinking, you know what, yeah, the season sucks, it's kind right, of... Right. You know, and then suddenly I arrived at uh, an English championship race and they'd not said anything. Kawasaki hadn't said anything to me, Alec more specifically. Yeah. And, uh, and in practice, I just thought, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that... <laughs> we, we're back, you know. Um, but by then, I'd lost too many points in the world championship. Yeah. Uh, and it was a frustrating time, actually, because that was one of those years where a lot of people suddenly, you know, you're winning races three in a row and then you're two points off the lead and you kind of have to question well, look, Kawasaki have not had a world champion. Yeah. Um, and you're prepared to sacrifice the fact that we're two points behind in the championship for parts, for safety reasons. And it wasn't me that was having the problems, you know. So, um, you know, I'm all up for sort of saying, look, you know, um, I'm able to manage this situation. And, and I was managing the situation. Yeah, um, you weren't but having, it was just yeah. one of those situations that so I'm guessing, my voice uh, wasn't loud enough. I was maybe a little bit inexperienced to... Um, stamp my feet. I've never been a foot stamper anyway, you know, but I, second year as a pro guy, and you've, the money's being paid to, you know, the guy who's just won three world titles, and mm-hmm. 
he's obviously the, the the team leader, and everything was geared around him. So, um, in that respect, you know, I don't I don't know. It was just I was. If I had my time, I mean, I don't think of anything, you know, in terms of if you had your time again, what would you change? There aren't too many things I would change, but while we're having this conversation now and, and thinking out aloud, mm-hmm. that's probably one of the things that I would have uh, changed, you know, is yeah. um, to have been more vocal at that point to say, look, you know, I'm, he's having the problems with his engines. Yeah. I'm not having the problems with mine. You're saying it's a big safety issue, but look, you know, I've not had a problem we're this close to leading the world championship. We can go on and win the world championship and, you know, and just right. and put my foot down. And I didn't feel like I was in a strong enough place to, to do that. You know, second year, still a relative rookie in the, in the championship. Right. Um, I was riding for the guy that had pretty much held my hand from the age of eight right the way through the youth ranks. So it would have been a slap in the face there. But, you know, we didn't win the title and uh, Joe Bay did. And, and um, you know, that was... Um, that was it. And the next world title came for Kawasaki was 96 with Tortelli. I'm guessing they took some compression away or something, a cylinder head or a crank change yeah, or something, Yeah, well, it was different right? conrods, yeah. different cylinder, different conrods. Right. And, it, you know, um, it to... basically mellowed everything out completely. You know, like I say, it didn't feel like a 500, but it was enough for me to notice immediately that, mm-hmm. you know, um, this is this is not right, you know. Um, um, and I, it was almost, it was also enough to notice that, even though they'd not said anything about reintroducing those parts and, and the cylinder, the original, what we call the A kit. Yeah. Um, that. Um, it's crazy that it, you were you were a good enough rider on a mighty 500, which people talk about. You know, it doesn't matter. They're fast, anyways. On a, on a big 500, you sounded like you were using all the power you could get, and they took some away, and it really affected your results. That, that's 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 crazy. Well, it was more, you know, obviously I'd harbored ambitions to be world champion. And right. um, and that was a great opportunity to do that, and so young as well. And uh, But from a from a manufacturer's point of view, and, I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not slating Kawasaki or anything else. Right. You know, somebody somewhere made a decision, and safety was the key uh, issue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I can look at that, and I did look at it, but not from my position it wasn't. You know, I was riding the bike differently. I didn't rev the bike as much as David, for instance. I was using more of the torque and, and you know, quick shifting um, and, and riding a lot smoother. So maybe that was part of the problem. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from a whole kind of perspective, you know, that was your last, well, that turned out to be their last real push at the World 500cc Championship, something that they've been going for for years and years and years. You yeah. know, Joe Bay had tried on Kawasaki and failed. Um, Kurt had failed. Um, Brad Lackey had failed on a Kawasaki. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there was uh, a lot of guys on Kawasaki's that had had, you know, the might of Japan behind them and, and failed on, uh, you know, on, on green. So, right. um and everything on that, you know, that bike, everything, me, the way I was riding, everything felt so natural. And so to be in that situation then of me being a little bit, um, like I say, chasing power um, didn't make sense. And in the end, it cost us. So, uh, like I say, if I had my time again, that would have been the one thing that I would have, you know, been more vocal about. Would have done um, it, You know, I'll take the safety issues if I have to and, and all the rest <laughs> of it. But Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're that close, right? Um uh, how did you uh, the, in in '94 for the 125 team? You, were you still on 500s and you were picked to ride 125? No, um, 
you'd drop down well, to there's, already? there's the funny thing. At the end of 91, you know, I'd, I'd gone from two points off the lead in the championship, dropping yeah. down to seventh, getting back to fourth by a handful of points from third. Uh, and then at the last minute, um, Kawasaki said, next year everything, or, you know, relatively close to the season, you know, we're 250s next year um, on a bike that wasn't proven. So I had an injury-strewn uh, 250 campaign in 92, mm-hmm. which um, then led to me leaving Kawasaki at the end of the year, um, and all kinds of stuff in, in and around that. But I ended up going to Yamaha in 93, and I'd had a period where I probably hadn't raced for about seven or eight months, you know, from, yeah. you know, injuries. Com- well, injuries and, yeah. and everything else and, and disputes and that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, you know, straight away being that far off. And, um, you know, I was always felt like I was chasing it a little bit in, in 93. Right. Domestically was fine, you know, 125, 250, winning national championship races, but, the, the, you know, the depth of competition wasn't the same. Yeah. Um, and uh, but on you know on the GP trail I was um, you know still just a little bit behind I was just wasn't sharp you know um, but then '94 I Mike, was getting a little bit either. more consistent yeah. uh, both at home and and abroad to the point where the last few GPs were starting to pick up and I think the last GP in in Germany at Geldorf um, I actually on the Sunday morning got pole position you know it was obviously time training on the Sunday yeah. morning. Uh, you got Everts and Greg Albertin going for the title. Um, so I'd pick those guys. And even though I made two terrible starts, uh, the only guy I think that overtook me in both races was Stefan. Oh, okay. um, and he had worse starts than I did. Right. I think we both went down in one and, um, you know, we got held up somewhere around the lap on, in another one. But we both came from sort of like way outside the top 20, top 25 um, he was chasing Alberton the whole way, you know, because Alberton and him were going for the championship. Albie, right. you know, got his uh, third title. Yeah, made it happen. Um, but he, um, but yeah, there, there was nobody made a pass on me and made it stick, you know, um, apart from Stefan. So, and I was pushing through, and that actually was the week before Roggenborg. Oh, okay. Uh, the so Nations. Were, yeah. But the, the talk around the the Nations and the whole team selection process, Thorpe had just retired mm-hmm. at the end of '93. Uh, and it, during 94, he was made team manager for the Motocross Nations team for GB. And, you know, 125, 250, I was riding, like I say, okay domestically. Yeah, but right. GPs, there was still a lot to be desired. Uh, but that was starting to come. But around the time of the teams being chosen and announced and shortlisted, that form was just around the corner um, for the last few 250 GPs that I was doing. And Dixon... Steve Dixon, um, who's now obviously team manager, yeah. team owner for Monster Energy Yamaha uh, that Dean Ferris has been riding for this past few years. He um, basically said, because he understands how big the Motocross Nations is mm-hmm. um, and always un- understood it in terms of you get a result, it's revenue for the team and, yeah. and everything else of the following year, you know. And he just made a suggestion. It seemed a bit wacky at the time. Well, you know, shortlist, can you put Paul on there for uh, 125 and 250, but mostly for the 125? I'll build him an engine because one of our teammates was um, already running a 125 with a decent decent engine performance. And um, so David basically said, okay, well, we'll we'll consider it. So we went to this. uh, We had a get-together at one track, not so far, well, right on the south coast, and I was the quickest rider there, quicker than Kurt on a 500, quicker oh. than Mervyn Anstey, quicker than everybody who was there on 125 or 250 yeah. on this engine that Steve Dixon had done. And um, 
basically at the end of the day, David came into me and just sort of said, look, you know, keep it under your hat, but I think you've already got the nod, You're you in. know, for the 125 ride. So yeah. we'd already entered a, a race that was consistent of 125 championship riders, mm-hmm. uh, you know, domestically and that were also riding GPs. And I, I rocked up on this day and uh, just you know, three or four race wins, whatever it was, and the margins were similar to what Bob Moore was winning over the same competition in GPs, if you know what I mean. Right, so, right, right. Uh, and obviously Bob Moore was world champion that year in 94. Yeah. Um, and then there was another race that we did again, you know, one there. and But there was still a lot of people saying, oh, but, you know, he should be riding a 250 or shouldn't even be on the team because his, great, his results haven't been that good and he's taking the opportunity away from guys that have been racing 125 GPs all year and, and right. blah, 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 blah. But David was strong enough to say, look, this is a team. Are we going there to win, or are we going there just because guys have been riding 125 GPs all year right, and barely right. scoring points, you know? Right, right. Um, and the ACU backed him 100%. And, it, you know, around that time of the last GP, we were, when Bob wasn't picked for Team USA, scandalous, you might say, <laughs> as a world champion, um, he, um, his engine came up for grabs. So nice. I had one of his engines in my chassis, and P.D. Hansen, who was a test rider for Yamaha, mm-hmm. also had one of his engines. So it wasn't just down to the bike, but it was just, you know, yep. marginally better than the, the bike that Steve had, had done. And Could then, I honestly, hand on heart, say if what I rode Steve's bike, you know, had the same results? I don't know. Right. I don't know. So it might have made enough of a difference for that. But you've still got to go there. You've still got to ride. You've still got to get the result. Um, and I look at Peter Johansson, who had exactly the same equipment and, you know, wasn't even close. Right. Yeah, you were just one of those days. I mean, obviously, like you said, you've been riding well, better than your yeah. results had shown. But there's no doubt at the designations just that you flowed, the track was good, the bike was great. Um, On a track, actually, that it was historically fast. for me, I mean, that was the first time I'd ridden there. But those kind of conditions weren't my – I didn't mind riding – in wet, muddy conditions, but uh-huh. off cambers and that kind of thing, and 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 uh, crowning rock. For me, they weren't good condition. That wasn't normally a good combination for me. So, I was obviously chasing the dirt somewhere. I was getting the power down. I was, you know, making everything work. And um, but I, I had some pretty bad starts as well. I was uh, we we had first gate pick, so it was first gate and middle twenty one, one and yeah, twenty one, right. And it was a 90-degree left-hander, very short left-hander into a right. Um, and so the 125 at the inside, whoever was at the inside was always going to be at a disadvantage anyway because yeah. it was just overly ridiculously tight. And if you made it through there, you were going to get pushed well wide going around the next right-hander uh-huh. because, you know, on the wrong side. Yeah. And I got boxed both times. You know, we put the faster guy through the middle um, to give them the 45-degree the run into that first turn. Right. Um, but I, you know, I had, I had to work hard. Um, to yeah. come through. I remember passing Jeff in both races and thinking, right, he's going to come with me now. Um, and, um, no, you know, he never he really did, did to ah, a certain extent. Yeah, a but, little bit. But we, we were talking about that, weren't we? You know, at, um, at the Nations in the, in the press tent. Uh-huh. There was me, you, Jeff. Uh, I think Roxon was just kind of in and around there. Yeah. And, uh, and Jeff actually, you know, very honestly, I thought, because he's, he's taken a lot of flack via Davy Coombs, Right. Uh, I guess over the years and uh, and whatever else, but um, like I said, you know, it's a race that defined me mm-hmm. um, in terms of being recognised as, as a you know some, as, a, as a, a result that got me some sort of success, you know. Um, and I've I 
seen Jeff. I hadn't seen Jeff in a number of years, um, maybe even almost 10 years since then um, at the British Grand Prix on the Isle of Wight years ago, probably 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. And we briefly talked about it um, very, very briefly. But, uh, you know, I didn't want to – and I've never gloated about it. You know, I've never kind of gone, oh, yeah, well, you know, this, that, and the other. And yeah. Other people like yourself, you give me stick over it, and you know you bring it up every time we meet, and that's fine. I'm I'm happy to do that, but oh, I never kind of put myself on that pedestal and go, yes, it was that easy, or yes, it was this, or yes, it was that. You know, um, but yeah, you should be remember, you should be proud of it. You wrote phenomenal, and uh, you know, obviously, um, um, it was a great great day for you. And again, Emic didn't like. There's this little perception, and I don't know if it's out there for everybody, but there is a perception like Emig choked or something, and he didn't. He rode great. He rode, he, he rode good, he, you he know. Rode good. Um, you rode great, I mean, you know. I mean, that's all there is to it. I, um, I mean, at the end of it all, you know, we all shook hands, and, and that was it, you know, congrats and, and, and whatever. You know, they came over. They were very respectful, um, you know, the two Mikes and, and Jeff. Mm-hmm. Roy Jansen uh, from the AMA at the time, he came over and, and said, uh, and I'd known him from a few years before riding the USGP at, at maybe um, at Glen Helen yeah. in 1990. He came over and introduced himself. And I always got on with him. And, and was it Roy Turner at Kawasaki? Yeah, Roy Turner was a manager. Yeah. Um, and basically, he came over and he just said, hey, got to hand it to you. You rode awesome out there today, man. He said, uh, you know, when we came to select the team, we thought Mike Drasky, um, uh, sorry, Mike LaRocco, you know, hard as nails, mm-hmm. always going to, you know, dig in and get a result and everything else, not a problem. Kudrowski, yeah, he was riding with a slight hand injury, I think, but was, even yeah. still, um, you know, solid, blah, blah, blah. Jeff, fastest guy in the world right now, um, you know, especially had they not, because they hadn't picked Bob Moore, um, right. because maybe they saw it as a, well, the AMA is stronger than the World Championship and blah, blah, blah. And, yep. you know, if it was between Bob and Jeff, Jeff's going to win, uh, Jeff will win hands down. And I think that was their mindset. And so since they looked at it and went, right, so there's no Bob Moore, so that's us. We're taken care of in the 125s. Mm-hmm. Italy put Chiodi on a 250. Um, there were lots of other political things going on with other teams. Um, you know, uh, I think Pichon should have been there but wasn't because DeMario was or, or something like that. Right, and maybe right. he would have been a 250 runner, which would have put somebody else in the 125 slot. And, you know, and it goes yeah. on and on and on. Yeah. And, and there were a lot of things like that. You know, uh, Everts wasn't there, for instance, because I think there was a, a sponsor backing the Belgian team that wanted Jackie Martins in, for instance. And so, you know, you got guys that should have been there that weren't. But it was very, very political. But at the end of the day, you've still got to go out and ride with the team that you've got. And, yeah. um, and I think, you know, on the day... You know, we did that very well. You know, we did that very well. But Davy Coombs, um, a while afterwards, and I think it might even be in print, and it was, you know, his memory of it is um, even even Jesus wouldn't have caught me that day, you know, um, <laughs> because I was so fast, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that was a nice nice thing to say. But I was talking to Jeff and, and yourself at yeah. uh, Teuschenthal, recently and he said he'd been watching a bunch of nations videos and he'd watched that one a few weeks before coming to to the race itself and he said in my own mind i thought it was a lot closer than it was <laughs> you know and he said and it, it wasn't until i yeah. watched it i was just like man you know, i've been kidding myself all these years you know and no it wasn't um, close yeah but you know there were it was but it was a it was a great occasion it was a great thing to be a part of but you know sadly we've not won it since then it's getting <laughs> to the point where it's going to be another 27 years i hope not but <laughs> 
you know, I kind of, the selfish side of me thinks, yeah, you know, it's it's fine because that's the one thing that I can still hold on to where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, every year, every year, you know, Jeff at, you know, Jeff Mayer, um, and it's large, he'll always sit there. So he say to me, um, oh, Paul, you got an interview, mate? Can I do an interview with you about the motocross and Asians? Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I'm like, Jeff, you've covered it, you know, the last, God knows how many years, and he'll be like, yeah, no, just a few more things I want to ask you. Right. And then, you know, so we'll talk about something else or talk about, just keep well, going over it and over it. But I, um, I know the feeling because anyway. I, I was a I was a member of the last team Team USA to lose until you know two years ago when that when that crown was lifted off of my head. Um, you know, in two thousand three, I went I went for Ferry as a mechanic and we mm. lost. And then forever, that was like, ah, oh, yeah, you were on the team that lost. But that luckily, was Belgium, wasn't it? Yeah, Belgium. But luckily, uh, well, not luckily, but unluckily for the Team USA, they've now lost two in a row, and so my, mm. nobody remembers two thousand three anymore. So I can relate. No. Um, hey, in, in uh, we don't have a lot of time left here, so uh, we almost should probably do a part two of this thing. Um, in 96, when you got second behind Tortelli in 125s, I read that you there were only two races that you didn't make the podium. Uh, yeah, the, well, the first round in Italy. Um, That's crazy. We both had, yeah, the first round in Italy, I, uh, I think one of the races, my rear wheel collapsed. And... Um, uh, overall GP, so 12 rounds of the series, um, 10 consecutive podiums from like the second round to the 11th round. Uh, But the first round in Italy, I didn't make the podium. Um, Like I say, rear wheel collapsed, and uh, and I think I'd come through the pack to get to about fourth at the time when it just disintegrated. And the final round was, I think, Germany. Um, I think I was just riding a little bit tense. Uh, I knew that second... At least third was on the line, but, you know, Tortelli had won the championship the week before, so mm-hmm. it was just kind of one of those. In, it was mixed conditions, hard, slick, um, rain, intermittent during the race, so just a nightmare for tires and that kind of thing. And I just rode hellbent on not making a mistake, and it actually was, <laughs> it went against me, you know, right, people right. just coming past me and, and that kind of thing. And, I, you know, I hold my hand up to that. And, but, um, but I guess... You know, but, I'm, yeah, they were, the first, they were the two rounds, yeah. I'm guessing if you, if you went 10 races in a row on a podium, and Tortelli clinched at a race early, that you two must have been miles ahead. He must have been miles ahead of you, and you were miles ahead of a third-place guy. We had some good races, actually. Um, There was one event that stood out in particular was the Belgian Grand Prix at Nîmes, where they had the... Those nations, yeah. Nations. Um, And two hole shots, and the first race, um, I think Stefan Evans actually rode. He he stepped down from 250 to 125 that oh, weekend. Okay. He was riding for RWJ in 250, but for the 125 GP in Belgium because it was a free weekend, mm-hmm. he just thought, you know what, I'm going to ride that as a wild card. Right. And leading the world championship in 250, you kind of almost think he went there to try and win it. You know, just to yeah. say, look, you know, I'm still good on a 125. I'm, and, the, I'm the man. Um, right. And it's very easy to look at myself and, and Sebastian to to say, yeah, 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 you're fast, but, you know, uh, I think I can probably hang with you guys. And um, I think he rode an FMF-backed um, Honda 125 that day. Okay. So he would have had his own suspension in there and yeah. um, and then just obviously gone there with a, a modified machine. But myself and Sebastian, we were, you know, 45 minutes when the flag fell after us banging bars, literally banging bars midair and all kinds of stuff. We were... 
less than half a second, I think, as we came over the line, he just nicked it. Oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah. But we, I, it wasn't until I saw the timesheets afterwards. I think it was like a minute and three seconds. Stefan Jeez. was third. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So we were like on it, you know, both races that day. Um, and, you know, good, good racing, close right. combat, but respect for each other. And um, But we had good races all during the season, but that one was particular, you know, standout. Did you did you ever think about coming to the U.S. doing any U.S. nationals? Did you do any U.S. riding in the winter? Uh, any supercrosses or anything anything like that? The first time I went to the U.S. to ride was the Florida Winter Series at the end of 1983. Uh, I went out. Oh, there was shit. a okay. good friend of mine actually. There was a I don't know if you remember him. There was a, a young Team Green youth rider called Hank Morey. Yeah, Hammer and Hank. Um, right. Yeah, Hammer and Hank Morey. Right. Um, he came over on an exchange program with in the summer of 83 to ride a, a youth international race. And he came over with uh, Paul Dennis, former world mini champ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dickie Ballora, um, who was riding. They were both riding 125, but in the two separate classes. One was like an A and a B class. Mm-hmm. Larry Ward came over, oh, rode uh, the 105, oh, and then bird. Hank. And obviously part of a Team Green program. So yeah. I met him in the run-up to that race, and obviously during that race weekend. And we kind of stayed in touch a little bit. Uh, and then Kawasaki re- returned the compliment. We went over, or I just went over on my own with my brother, who was uh-huh. also riding Team Green at the time, my older brother. Um, and we rode Florida Series. And, uh, oh, cool. And obviously we kept that. So that time, 83, Damon Bradshaw was riding yeah. uh, minis for Yamaha. Um, oh, man, you know, just Ronnie Tishner. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, you right. know, so old school guys. Um, and then, um, and then basically it started a bit of a, a nice camaraderie between us, you know, to the point where at the end of, uh, was that 83, 84, and then end of 86, I think I was riding 125s. I went and stayed with Hank in South Carolina. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, his old man, uh, Henry, had just bought... I don't know, like 5,000 square acres of land or something like that, just creeks and all the rest of it. And then right. when I went back in, uh, I think it would have been end of 96, beginning of 97, because we had horrendous weather here pre-season. So I just thought, you know what, I'm going right. to jump on a plane and go stay with him. They transformed that whole land. They got a ranch on there. They got hunting grounds. They got roads in there. They got two, <laughs> two circuits, a supercross track. Uh, and a motocross track, Camp Coca, and um, and basically, I just I think I was there for three weeks, twenty one days. I think I rode and trained for like seventeen or eighteen of those days that I was there. Just yeah. literally, it was almost like isolation camp. for yeah, me. Yeah, right, right. You know, pick me up at the airport and everything else. You're going to go to work. I'm going to go ride and train, and that was it. And then you know, I uh, had that you know kind of program. Right. Um, but I raced um, at the end of. Uh, when was it? End of yeah, end of eighty, uh, beginning of ninety-seven. Um, when I when I stayed with him, I was there Christmas and uh, eighty-six. Uh-huh. Did some races in Florida, and then basically went up and did uh, a race in Vegas and a race in California. Oh, but okay. that I ended up breaking my leg there, the last round of the um, like winter uh, series Golden or something. State. Yeah, yeah, Golden State. State. Right, yeah. Right, right. So uh, oh. I ended up missing. I was in plaster then in my left leg for seven months. Oh, nice, nice. So, yeah, uh, yes. so tip fib, compound fracture, and, and all the rest of it. So at a race you know. or practicing? Uh, race at the race. race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but, yeah. you know, that I raced uh, USGP in 90 and 91, both at Glen Helen. Uh, Helen. Yeah. And then um, I think I went to the, the 250GP at Bud's Creek. But like I said, you know, earlier on in the yeah. in, the, in the podcast, um, you know, I wasn't riding good then. You know, I had, a you know, a period of seven or eight months where I hadn't been racing and then obviously trying to chase my, you know, my rear yeah. end a little bit, trying to get on pace with these guys. So that USGP came at the wrong time for me, really, um, to be honest. 91, 92, uh, Glen Helen, Bale won both of those, I think, huh? Yes. Yeah, Bale would yeah, have he did, yeah. was over here and then, yeah, would have showed up. I think he cooked his brakes or something one, one race. Um, well, interesting stuff, Paul. Thank you for doing this. The BTOsports.com hey, no Racer X podcast presented by Thor MX. Um, I got to run uh, out, but we should do a part two. Interesting stuff, man. I, I got a bunch more questions for you. And uh, you got a great memory, which is good. So <laughs> it's getting it's it's getting a little bit fuzzy, but you know I, I, I'm doing my best. But I have to draw on that sometimes, you know, in yeah. the in the booth. So um, glad it's still there. Yeah, right on. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Paul. I appreciate you taking the time to do this all the way from England. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch, man. Thank you. Hey, no worries. And uh, hey, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you guys. All right, thanks, man. Thanks. Bye. bye. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show brought to you by RacerX. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself that's it you know and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that you know that i was going to miss the daughter ron machine until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying it's like being a dead horse i mean you know and i know from personal experience did anybody ever sit me down of course they did everybody did go circuits mitch payton there's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I had pulled pitch and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny O'Mara. Stuff that you could, you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it. You just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX on the iTunes Store to enjoy these and many more great podcasts. I won't let this die. You know I've got this bad opinion. I've been feeling another reason.